You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. You're listening to Metamorphosis, a podcast designed to help medical students navigate their medical careers. My name is Iman. And my name is Crystal. On today's episode, we'll be chatting with Dr. Kelly Lefebvre, an orthopedic surgeon specializing in orthopedic trauma, associate professor at UBC with extensive work in both research and education. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it's like to be practicing as an orthopedic surgeon in Vancouver? Sure, I'm happy to. So there's a lot there. Um, I am a um, lifelong Vancouverite, so I'm the, I date myself a bit by saying this, but I'm the unusual person who was actually born at Vancouver General Hospital back when there was obstetrics there. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at Queens in life sciences, and I uh, was part of the 2002 um, faculty of medicine class at UBC. I did my residency at UBC as well, which is a five-year program. And then I completed a clinical fellowship at UT Southwestern in Dallas uh, with a focus on adult trauma and specifically on new and evolving techniques around minimally invasive treatment of injuries of the pelvis and acetabulum. I also did a master's degree at uh, Harvard School of Public Health in clinical epidemiology um, as a way to serve my interest in clinical outcomes research and sort of Uh, give me the tools I needed to be successful academically as a faculty member at UBC. Um, And I joined the faculty at UBC and the staff at BGH in 2008, um, where, as you both said, I'm an adult trauma specialist. So I'm part of a group of what was historically five and now six surgeons that really do nothing but adult trauma. So uh, we're one of Uh, but the central center uh, for training of residents in trauma or orthopedic trauma surgery. We also run an internationally renowned fellowship program. Um, And we also act as a, you know, 365 day a year clinical resource for complex trauma for the province. Um, On a personal side, I'm um, a mom of three. I have twin daughters that just turned eight. Um, and a son who's about to turn six, who is nothing but trouble. And uh, I'm I'm married to uh, someone I've known my whole life and I grew up with in West Van. Um, And we live on the North Shore, um, you know, amongst people that that we've known our whole lives, um, which is is a really nice thing and a nice way to, to try and achieve some balance. Thanks so much for that really wonderful introduction about who you are, Dr. Lefebvre. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about your medical school journey and what made you choose medicine? Sure, I'm happy to. So, you know, I think I like to think that as parents and educators, maybe we do a better job at a younger age about sort of exposing and certainly in the information era but exposing young people to the variety of uh, different career opportunities that are available to them as i said i'm i'm of a different generation than you guys are and um you know my grandmother was a nurse at the um at vgh and was a an instructor at the original vgh nursing school Uh, my mother was also a nurse um, and I was someone who was always um, had an affinity for uh, math and sciences. Um, and so I was strongly encouraged to pursue medicine um, from a young age. Um, but like many people, I think you, you sort of pursue that goal without having a full understanding of how that may look or, or feel or, or what, uh, what a career in medicine is really like. So I guess I would count myself as part of the lucky group that you know really loves it and really still loves my work day to day despite the fact that i think many of us walk into it a little bit blind um and i came into medical school really without too much idea of what i wanted to do as far as um specialty 
aside from the premise that I liked the idea of being an expert in one thing. So I think I was always attracted to, um, to a specialty uh, outside of family medicine. Um, but what that specialty was going to be, you know, I think what I imagined or what I thought would attract me and what actually attracted me in the end were completely different things. Thank you so much for kind of giving us that outlook. I, I definitely think it's hard to know the full extent of what we're getting into for sure, even if we try. So you did mention that you had some contenders uh, going through. So I'm wondering what those are and kind of what made you finally decide orthopedic surgery was for you. Yeah, interesting. So, um, you know, I'm, and, and I think an orthopedic surgeon or any other kind of specialist can look or be any type of person. Um, but I certainly was not like the traditional person that you would think of as uh, someone who was pursuing orthopedic surgery or certainly in that era when there was, you know, less women uh, or many, uh, many fewer women uh, in orthopedic surgery than there are now. I've always uh, really liked children. I've been interested in women's health. You know, I said my mom as a registered nurse and uh, she's worked a lot in family planning and women's health through her life. Uh, so I honestly thought I would be a gynecologist or maybe a pediatrician. Um, but I think again, at that early stage, you know, some of the day-to-day -day elements, not only the patient type, but the topic area, how that's gonna interest you intellectually and then the kind of concrete components of how you spend your day. So I think very few of us get exposed to procedural um, components of medicine prior to actually being clerks or, or actually having the opportunity to start to rotate through some of the specialties. So uh, really procedurally focused or, or surgical specialties uh, wasn't something that I was focused on. And I was far enough away from the concept of wanting to be an orthopedic surgeon that myself and um, Dr. Sheena McAdam, who's a plastic and reconstructive surgeon that works at VGH and UBC as well, who's a longtime friend and was a classmate of mine. She and I were always kind of planning how we could sort of work things to our advantage. And, and when we were coming up to our third year rotations, we thought, well, we'll we'll pick this grouping, whatever B group or C group it was that starts with orthopedics, because we know neither of us want to do orthopedics. So if we start with that one, we'll get used to the hospital, we'll figure out this whole charting thing and orders and pagers and all like the basic mechanics. Um, and so we were together on rotation at Royal Columbian Hospital in September of our third year. And I mean, it, it was a life-changing few weeks for me, obviously. It just, it, I was just so engaged right out of the gate. It was amazing to me that you would see these people roll in, you know, with fractured femurs and their legs facing the wrong way. And then you take them to the OR and you do all these steps to make it perfect and align it. And then you'd see the person the next day and they're walking around on the ward with crutches. I mean, the immediate impact of it uh, was was amazing. And I think the control that you impart on that outcome, you know, like literally control it with your hands um, was something that really grabbed me from the outset and grabbed her too. I mean, she ended up going into plastic surgery, really having no, no intention of, of pursuing a surgical specialty either. So I sort of spent the next year like trying to convince myself that that, that wasn't what I wanted to do. I was like, well, no, that can't be. I'm going to like everything. So it must just be that I really like clinical medicine and I really loved that rotation. So the next one will be the same. And the next one was not the same. And the one after that was not the same. But I r remained pretty intimidated by, um, you know, the uh, kind of culture around the residency and, and the work hours and the concept that you had to like sacrifice yourself completely um that scared me frankly a lot um 
And then the other part that was hard at that stage is I couldn't see myself, meaning I couldn't see a person that was like me, that was having the kind of life that I thought I wanted to have um, because there was no women. So that made it really hard to make that choice too. Um, so I ended up pursuing some additional rotation option or opportunities in orthopedics. Like I'm sure it's changed now, but at the time when you did your pediatrics rotation, you could do a two week, um, subspecialty section in pediatric orthopedics rather than pediatric medicine. And there was a few different ways to kind of get some additional exposure. So I sought out those opportunities and really just ended up finding, um, more and more interest and more and more strong mentorship and really like solidified my desire to pursue it as a career. Thank you so much for telling us about your journey through medical school and what really drew you to orthopedics. I think one thing that you mentioned that really stood out to me was mentorship. Um, since you, you mentioned the field of orthopedics has, uh, I guess, didn't really have too many people that look like you. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about mentorship and um, how you found your mentor. Yeah, good question. So mentorship is a really important piece, uh, both to mentor and mentee. Um, And I think one of the most important kind of value adds that I get out of my own career now is providing mentorship. So sort of the benefit of being a mentor um, is something that I personally really get a lot out of. Um, I think I didn't realize at the time, because I did have such strong mentorship like and sponsorship. So, you know, people that had had very successful careers as academic orthopedic surgeons really encouraging me um, and, you know, providing teaching, providing mentorship, um, and really encouraging me uh, to pursue it as a specialty. That, uh, you know, as I said, that was really the hinge point for choosing orthopedics. But of course, those mentors couldn't tell me anything about what it was going to be like to be a 45-year-old mom of three and a full-time academic orthopedic surgeon. Um, So what I didn't realize at the time was that um, I was probably lacking uh, the kind of specific mentorship uh, that I try and provide now to the next generation. Um, And uh, I do think it's important to really uh, advocate for yourself and seek out mentorship that really suits your personal needs. Um, we're sort of trained to sort of take uh, help where it's offered. And so if someone kind of has an interest in you and thinks you've done well on the rotation and they want to write you a letter for CARMS and they're willing to talk to you, that that's typically where um, we're encouraged to, to seek out or to accept mentorship. But I think that, and I would hope that learners feel empowered to really ask for the mentorship they need from the sources they think best suits them. Um, and that's uh, in many cases seeking out someone that you know shares traits with you and may share challenges that you may face and so on. Um, so I think historically, long-winded answer, historically I've gotten great mentorship that I'm grateful for, but it's come through more traditional measures, which is person you're on a rotation with thinks you're a good medical student thinks you're a good resident and they're willing to help you and talk to you about the specialty and and um, offer you some guidance and that's been very helpful to me um, and the mentorship that I use more now is is purposeful so is this person shares these traits with me and has achieved this element in their life or their career that that I would like to achieve. And I actively seek out that type of mentorship um, at, at this stage of my career. I think it's important at every stage. So I would encourage learners to do the same. That's really such an interesting perspective and one that, like you said, we don't hear very often. I like the idea of being purposeful about mentorship. Also going back to some of your story, you felt 
that in orthopedics you, you felt it wasn't for you because you didn't see people who look like you and I'm wondering how that affected kind of yourself if it did in residency or beyond and and how you kind of got to a point where you felt you did belong there yeah yeah so I would say how it affected me kind of pre-residency and early residency was it was sort of for lack of a better term at times anxiety provoking right like so i i was in the residency program i was doing well in the residency program but that's one piece that's one piece of having a fulfilling life right as our job the other big piece is is your personal life and and your personal well-being of which your job is a is a part but certainly not the dominating part so I was still at many stages unsure how all these pieces would fit together. Would I be able to make all these pieces fit together? Um, so I found that on honestly at, at times anxiety provoking um, until, until I actually, you know, the rubber hit the road and I made all the pieces fit together really without having a handbook for how that would look. Part of how I've made that work um, over time is, you know, garnering a group of mutually supportive women from various specialties and and various um, hospitals um, that we share a common string. You know, we have high demand work uh, work life and high demand personal life and how we balance it and how we communicate with our spouse and how we deal with the difficulty at work that they don't understand maternity leave and, and all these other pieces that we, that we face. Um, so that's really how, um, how I've made that piece work is by kind of finding a, finding a village um, that offers some mutual support. Thank you so much for that really brilliant response. I think it's definitely really important to find people around you to support you, especially your own village. It might be a bit difficult nowadays with it all being virtual, but hopefully when things are in person again, it'll be a bit easier to create our own villages. And remember for you guys, much of my village are people that I met at your stage or during residency that there's so much to be said for that shared experience and that shared experience continues long beyond when you finish your residencies you know you guys will go through every stage of life and every stage of career together so um, the village building for a successful career in medicine definitely starts now thank you so much for saying that i know many people mention that they find their lifelong friends in medicine so it's easy to forget sometimes when it's a year of virtual school, but thank you so much for bringing that up. <laughs> so we're wondering, um, you, you mentioned that the face of orthopedic surgery is slowly beginning to change, but do you still think that there are gaps that exist for women entering surgical specialties? And do you have any advice? Yeah, so I think, um, I think that there is gaps or kind of an evolving understanding and series of efforts to address gender bias in medicine in general. Surgery is not alone, uh, but surgery is a bit of an outlier as far as proportionate representation. Um, I know it's an issue that the Faculty of Medicine at UBC takes seriously. Um, and I know that, you know, it's something that we're all, all of us, uh, I put myself included in this, are learning about and trying to get better at all the time. You know, one of the challenges is that cultural change for all of us is a slow process and a difficult process. Um, and so in orthopedics now in Canada, you know, orthopedic surgeons that are women make up 11% of the membership of the Canadian Orthopedic Association. Um, UBC, I know from a study that we've done uh, that's coming out in the next few months in the Canadian Journal of Surgery, 
is sort of in the middle as far as uh, women uh, on faculty, proportion of women on faculty. Um, there's some gaps though, you know, there's things that I think will be part of your generation more than they're part of my generation. So, um, you know, there's, uh, there's a relative underrepresentation of women in love, higher levels of promotion and, and leadership in surgery in Canada, for sure. And I think it'll, it'll take some real focused work on behalf of the universities to, to try and uh, change that over time. Um, but I think the desire to, to see that change happen um, and to grow in that direction is there. I think it's just a matter of time. That's really encouraging to hear that it's something that you've even noticed slowly changing over time. Um, and, and like you said, I think I think there's definitely a concerted effort now to be more mindful of these things. And um, something I actually wanted to follow up on that you just brought up was the leadership position actually um, and how we see that is very different for women, uh, despite the fact that, you know, our, our medical class, I think, is majority women, but um, you're not seeing necessarily that represented in kind of those higher ranking leadership positions. And I wonder how your experience has been kind of trying to move up the ranks. It's been a personal growth experience for me. I um, it's something that I personally take seriously that I think is a very important step that will have to happen in order to change the culture overall in a trickle-down manner. Um, one of the issues, if you look at the body of literature around gender diversity in medicine, is that the metrics by which many of these things are measured, so promotion, so how we award promotion, you know, do you score well in this category or that category? Um, and similarly, how we award leadership positions, even though there may be a, a desire to put women in those positions, uh, in many cases, the metrics or the measurement tools that are used for assessment are sort of inherently biased. Um, so, you know, that's the challenge. I, I face that challenge. I think that's no secret. You know, I was on the shortlist for the uh, department head role for orthopedics at UBC this past year and, and was unsuccessful. Um, so, you know, I think that it has to be, there has to be a real overarching concerted effort on the part of uh, the highest levels of leadership to, to be able to, to really make that change. Um, and, and I think it'll happen and it might not be me, <clears throat> but I, I do think it'll happen. Thank you so much for sharing some of your personal experience. I feel like the needle's definitely slowly moving, but it takes a lot of time before you can actually see any real change happen. And hopefully in the next few years, we'll actually begin to see a lot of these physical changes happening. So I just wanted to bring it back to um, when you were doing orthopedic residency. Um, we've heard some stereotypes about the residents, I guess, being jocks or um, having this uh, very macho-like stereotype. And I'm wondering if you can bust any myths for us. Sure. I can bust a lot of myths. So I think that's true, um, that that's the stereotype. Um, but you do not need to be a linebacker to have the physical strength or capability to be a successful orthopedic surgeon. And I would, <clears throat> pardon me, double down on that and say, you do not need to have those physical traits even to be a trauma surgeon or a joint replacement surgeon, which are some of the areas that are uh, more traditionally male, um, you know, whereas pediatric surgery and upper extremity surgery tend to see uh, more representation of women. Um, the group of uh, surgeons that I trained with was more male than female, obviously, but within those gender groupings, there was all types of people, uh, different um, ethnic and cultural backgrounds, um, different physical size, um, you know, different interests. So I think that in uh, 
current orthopedic training in Canada, this premise that, you know, the traditional orthopedic resident looks a very particular way um, is less and less true. In fact, I'm racking my brain right now to think of, you know, orthopedic residents that we have in our program right now that are that kind of traditional mold. Um, and I, I think that traditional mold really doesn't exist anymore. And that orthopedics is a specialty in which any type of person can have success. Yeah, thank you for that. I think um, I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. And it's funny to me that these stereotypes have lasted so long despite the changes that are maybe more true in, in actual practice. And so just, I guess we've talked a lot about generally what orthopedic surgery is, but we're wondering if you could describe kind of cases that you do or anything kind of that is part of your day-to-day just so that we get a better idea of what it actually entails. Sure, no problem. So, so as I said, um, our subspecialty interest is in adult trauma. So what that entails is traumatic conditions of the extremities, excluding the hand. So typically hand and wrist or carpal bone injuries at VGH are managed by plastic surgeons. That is a shared interest area of plastic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons. So at some other hospitals in Canada, you would see orthopedic surgeons managing hand injuries. Spine is a separate um, area, and that's a shared um, uh, subspecialty between orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery. So the spine surgery group at VGH is a Um, combined uh, group of neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons that deal only in spine. So we deal uh, really in everything else. And so uh, the kind of typical thing or or the thing we always jump to is fractured bones. And that's part of it. Uh, But, um, you know, it involves the traumatic injuries to not just the bones, but all the other important structures that surround the bones, um, including, you know, joint stabilizing soft tissue structures and and soft tissue um, envelope. We work really closely with lots of different specialties, which is kind of what's nice and exciting is that, you know, we work very closely with the general surgery trauma surgeons. We work very closely with the emergency department. Um, we work closely with the vascular surgeons, uh, with the plastic surgeons, with the spine surgeons. So um, there's a, a kind of close-knit, multidisciplinary team offering trauma care um, at VGH, which is great. One of the things that I loved about trauma, which is why I was so glad to, to get to choose it and, and to get to um, do it uh, at a place that I wanted to live and wanted to work is that trauma is something different every day. So you imagine if you're um, a sports medicine surgeon or a, or a joint replacement surgeon, you might do, you know, on, a, on any given day, two hip replacements and two knee replacements, and you might do that three days a week. And yes, there's complexity there. And yes, you know, there's different deformities and different types of arthritis and different um, uh, bony anatomy and other things that might make those a little different or a little complicated. But largely, it's kind of the same thing. I always thought again and again and again. Whereas with trauma, every injury is different. And you might be in the foot and in the shoulder and in the pelvis on, on the same patient. So anatomically it's really diverse and really interesting as far as the injuries go again you know no matter how much experience you have you always see things you've never seen before and that's um, that's true your entire career so that part stays really really interesting um so you know the majority i would say uh, 90 percent of the surgical procedures that i do are urgent and emergent. So they are um, traumatic injuries that have occurred to patients anywhere from within the last two hours to within the last two weeks on some of the walking wounded injuries. Um, 
and those are done on, as I said, an urgent and emergent basis. And we really pride ourselves on, on offering early total care and, and as, as uh, expedited a care as we can for especially for multiply injured trauma patients. And then about 10% of what I do is uh, tr trauma related reconstruction or delayed reconstruction. So non unions of injuries, mal unions, and then um, the other kind of niche thing I do is fusions around the pelvis for both uh, post-traumatic and non-post-traumatic conditions. So symphysis, SI joints, and then combined uh, cases with the spine surgeons is, is one of the things that, um, that I do um, on an infrequent uh, basis, but those are complicated and interesting cases. It's really interesting to hear about the diversity in uh, trauma surgery. We had a previous guest talk about why he ruled out orthopedics, and he reiterated what you said, that there was a lot of repetitive procedures. So that was really nice to hear. And it's, it's interesting, but also not to downplay. When you start, it's challenging. Because one of the things you really need, so um, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before, because it's, because it's true, I'm sure, of every specialty, is post-residency is a bit of a cliff. You know, there's, you're supported and supervised, and it's like that little um, meme that's like, I'm looking for the attending, the attendee or attending, somebody send an attending, you know, all of a sudden it's you. Um, and that's a difficult can be a difficult and at times a stressful leap. So if you have a mostly elective practice, well then, you know, if you want to take two months to think through and discuss how you're going to do this complex hip replacement and plan, 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 you have that time, which is nice, especially when you start. When you're a trauma surgeon, what you're doing the next day may happen at two o'clock in the morning and you may need to operate on that person at seven. So the time in which to process in your mind um, what your plan is and then execute that plan can be very, very short. Um, so in those first, so that's gotten a lot easier over time. But in those first few years, I, I did spend a few nights up, not necessarily in hospital, but at home, you know, thinking, planning, drawing diagrams, um, reading papers, looking at books, planning what I was going to do the next day because it all happens in, in, in really uh, rapid fire sequence. That's really interesting because we don't get to hear a lot about that behind the scene aspect of sometimes, like when you're home and you're prepping for a case, I, no one ever talks about that. So to be able to do your trauma fellowship, um, you decided to go to the States. And I'm just wondering what that process involved and, and why you decided to make that decision. And and how has that been um, kind of coming back to Canada after that? So one thing I'll say as a disclaimer, and just out of nothing but uh, respect for my colleagues and the learners that are managing this process um, with families and with kids, I think that that's an added degree of difficulty and complexity in planning those things. So I had my kids after fellowship. Um, so at the time I was planning all these steps, I sort of had the, um, the, the luxury, I guess, of, of being able to kind of plan in isolation what I wanted to do and needed to do. Um, so I wanted to have a strong clinical fellowship that would bring um, a new and slightly different skill set than the group I was joining. So that's one thing that's nice as you bring on, you know, people retire and, and you bring on new um, group members or faculty members to have everybody bring in just a little bit of a different or new skill set, I think, keeps your practice current and evolving. Um, and in Dallas, Texas, they had developed a number of uh, different techniques for minimally invasive treatment of pelvis and acetabulum fractures, and that's really what they were known for. And uh, it's a, a major county hospital, so um, it um, is a very high volume center, 
much higher volume as a trauma center than VGH or really any parallel center in Canada would be. And so I did just a huge volume of clinical cases and learned a whole bunch of skills, technical skills around treatment of pelvis and acetabulum fractures primarily. And then any fellowship, I always tell the residents, any fellowship you pick, I think the premise of trying to make it a complete uh, training um, experience, meaning it's going to fill every possible gap, every type of case, you're going to get volume in this, that, and the other, is untrue. Fellowship is yet another educational opportunity, and you know your education and growth continues well beyond fellowship. But just by the fact that a fellowship in orthopedics anyway is typically limited to one year, you know, you're going to get lots of this and less of that or vice versa, but it's never going to be, a lot, you know, uh, all of everything that you wish it could be. So I did lots of pelvis and acetabulum, but much less of, of other types of injuries that I treat every day in my practice now. Um one of the other things I liked about Dallas or about that fellowship program was that it was a two fellow fellowship program. So lots of the big trauma programs in the U S have like six fellows or eight fellows. So you have the risk of sort of getting lost in the mix a little bit. I liked the idea of kind of the mentorship and, and the access to surgical experience that being in a smaller fellowship would afford me. One of the challenges that you get into, and my fellowship was, of course, at a different time, but I think these challenges are the same. It's around visas and um, um, work permits and whether you have to leave the U.S. after or could you work in the U.S. after and all of those things. Um, so the fellowships that are affiliated with you, so different states have different regulations. Texas does require USMLEs, um, so luckily I had done those, done those as I went through. Um, and, you know, it's associated with the University of Texas Southwestern, which is a major university center that has a, a, a large number of international visiting faculty and faculty. So um, their um, Office of Immigration was really instrumental in getting the visa. I mean, it was literally get a stamp of approval from the right person there. Um, and I had not a training visa, but an actual working visa, which doesn't have the same implications as far as having to leave the country after your training is complete. So in my case, that part was easier, um, but in other states and, and other programs, that, that can definitely be more of a challenge. But it is nice, I would say, to go somewhere different and learn a different skill set than where you do your residency if your personal life and, and other, um, other important factors in your life will allow it. It is nice to see a different system and to learn from a different system than the one in which you trained. Thank you so much for that. Um, it was really interesting hearing your perspective about how to choose a fellowship and uh, purposely choosing a place where you could learn a different skill set. Um, we're still really early in our medical careers, and um, I was curious about. Uh, so you mentioned that you took the USMLE steps as you went through and. I'm just curious about how that was and did you take it during medical school or residency? Um, gosh, you're asking me to remember a long time ago now. So I definitely did. You guys tell me if this makes sense, but I, I think I did step one during my last year of medical school coinciding with step two of the LMCC. I think there's some parallel between those two that right not sure <laughs> i think we're both clueless yeah yeah there's so i essentially did them in parallel for the most part so i can't tell you the the specific someone who's closer to it would would be able to speak to it better um but it may be actually that i did step one in parallel with the uh, first part of the lmcc and step two in parallel with the second part of the lmcc and then I did step three in residency, and that was the hardest because there is kind of no pairing with that. So that involved 
you know, really having to carve out some time outside of my residency training to prepare for that. Um, because it, you know, dissimilar to the ones that I did in parallel with the LMCC, um, it wasn't like you were studying for, for both at the same time. I really had to, had to carve out some specific time. I would say if you're considering doing uh, a fellowship in the U.S., Aside from the cost, there's little to lose by keeping up to speed with at least your step one and step two. And then your step three is uh, dependent, you know, is closer to when you're actually making that decision around fellowship. Because I do think that going, trying to go back and do step one and step two during residency is something that our residents at times have had to, had to do and, and found extremely challenging. That's some really great insight, uh, especially because we're early enough, I guess, in our careers to make those decisions about step, even though if it's an added kind of exam that we all hate. <laughs> so for you, it seemed that the fellowship was something you absolutely wanted and was the right decision for you to gain that additional skill set. But for orthopedic surgery in general, is that something that is pretty common for individuals? Yeah, good question. So that's something that's evolved a lot over time. So I would say that when I started in residency, so 2002, the sort of expected standard was if you were going to be a community surgeon in Trail or Langley or, or um, some uh, smaller community center in the province, that you were more than ready for that after your residency training and that there was no expectation of having additional training. So there's many orthopedic surgeons working in the province who um, would not have had a fellowship necessarily. I think all, always, I'm gonna say always, um, it's been the standard that if you're a subspecialist working in the academic center, that you're bringing some um, additional training and additional skill set to that. So I think that's always been the case. What's evolved over time, though, both uh, because of some of the uh, difficulties and competitiveness in the job market in orthopedics um, and just changing technology, changing standards for skill sets, is that it's um, universal now, I would say, that our graduating residents do a fellowship regardless of where they're planning to work. And it's not unusual for our graduates to do or to plan two fellowships after residency. Um, and that's not always to serve uh, an academic job. That may still be to serve um, uh, a specific need uh, at a community center. So now everybody does one and many, I'm not gonna say most, but many do two fellowships. Thank you so much for talking about that. I just wanted to, I guess, expand a little bit more on uh, the job market for orthopedics in Canada and also touch on um, the fact that previously you mentioned you also got your MSc in epidemiology. And I think you mentioned it was also sort of to to get like a, a more of an academic job or is it just for any any job? Yeah, good question. It has to do, in my case, it had to do with the need of the specific subspecialty group I was joining. So the subspecialty group I was joining, as I said, was a group of five surgeons that are centered at VGH that are part of the Division of Orthopedic Trauma under the Department of Orthopedics. They have had... Um, and had had at the time, historically, a lot of success, a lot of academic success in uh, clinical research. Uh, but without anyone that had a specific skill set to really maximize on that. So when I was recruited as a resident, you know, one of the things that it was made clear they were looking for was someone with that specific skill set um, in clinical research. Uh, that is a common thing in our department. It's sort of culturally become uh, part of, of what the expectation is in many of the divisions of our department. So not everybody has a master's degree in, 
epidemiology or education um, or or a basic science area, but but many do, and most divisions would have some some expertise in clinical research uh, from an additional training perspective. So I viewed it, I mean, I never viewed it as a burden, frankly, it was the thing that really like lit me on fire as far as clinical research. I always tell the residents, you know, when everyone's feeling bogged down by the research requirement and everything, I had zero publications as a resident, zero. It's a very hard thing to do, right? To plan a study and got the right mentorship and to complete it and then to see it through the publication process. You know, that is a, a whole skill set that's very hard to develop uh, in an isolation bubble. So during that master's degree, I just like light bulbs going off all over the place. I was just constantly keeping notes about we should do this, we should do that. And um, so it, it really set me off in a lot of different directions as far as clinical research. And I think is ultimately what's made me successful in clinical research. But it's not a must for um, for an academic role. Um, but I think it's a, it's a great educational opportunity for someone who is interested in clinical research. Yeah, that sounds really exciting that you were kind of able to find research kind of later on in your career. That's, that's very cool and encouraging as well. And it's nice to know that your interests can continue to be developed as you move through residency as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even beyond that. So like what I do research wise now versus what I did five years ago versus what I did 10 years ago. You know, all of that is constantly evolving too. And going back since now, you did mention that a lot of individuals get two fellowships sometimes, or at least at the very least one. Um, Just wondering where those individuals who graduate residency, where are they looking to go and kind of work eventually? So, you know, the job market, I think it's no secret that the job market in in, uh, many surgical specialties, uh, which orthopedics is definitely one, has been a challenge over the last 10 years or so, um, and that there's some indication that that's opening up uh, uh, to a fair degree, which is good. Um, People with two fellowships work all over the place. You know, they work at academic centers, they work at less academic centers. um, And for some residents or some learners that are coming out of training, you know, being in Vancouver proper is the primary goal because of their spouse's job or their parents or some other reason. Um, and for others, you know, being at a big academic center is the, is the primary goal. So, and, you know, for whatever reason, a job here doesn't work out. So they end up elsewhere in Canada or in the U S. So it depends very much on, on the individual priorities. What I always tell the residents is to try and be clear as hard as it is for, you know, type A people that are really used to being successful, um, as hard as it is to imagine a scenario in which you can't have every element you want, you know, you can't have the the um, case mix in the practice you want, can't be in the city you want, academic versus non-academic, all of those things. Um, the reality is that most people don't get every element that they would want. So it's important, I think, to prioritize what your highest priorities are and then make the decisions that serve those priorities. Thank you so much for touching on that. It definitely, um, I know some people talk about how we're so early in our careers, we shouldn't have to think about the job market, but it's really great that you gave really honest advice about it. That's what it's all about, right? It's like, you've got to, yeah, I do think you have to think about that, at least to start to think about what your priorities might be. Um, Makes perfect sense. I know I was thinking about it at your stage. So we're curious. Um, You talked a lot about how uh, research is closely tied to surgery and uh, orthopedic surgery. So we're wondering, where do you think the field of orthopedic surgery is headed? So, uh, well, it's a bit of a bias uh, from the perspective of what my research interests are. But where I think research in orthopedic trauma is heading is I would put that in kind of two main buckets. 
is number one. I think we're getting better and better as to how to measure outcomes in patients. So historic literature in orthopedic trauma is terrible. So like the outcome measurement is literally, I think I did a good job. All of my patients are good or excellent as opposed to some, you know, objective, reproducible, reliable, valid tool that actually has the ability to detect change. So I think as those tools get better and we get better at using those tools, the quality of research around decision-making is gonna be better. So who do we need to operate on? Is this surgery better than that surgery? Many of those things are almost surprisingly, you know, based on, on, on expert opinion in many cases is sort of the level of the body of literature. So that's number one is outcome measurement. The other thing I think um, that is really interesting and that's um, evolving quickly in orthopedics is we're of course, you know, technicians and really focused on x-rays and, and mechanics of implants and, you know, testing them in the lab and which one's stronger and this and that. When in reality, probably the most important determinant of how a patient does after their injury is what they were like before you ever met them. So were they resilient? Do they have social supports in place? Do they struggle with uh, depression and anxiety? Um, all of these other important patient factors really are what ultimately drive outcome. So you can give someone the most perfect x-ray ever. And if you haven't at least met them where they are, uh, let alone offered some supports for these other components, um, they're not going to do well. So there's a real evolving interest in that area. So how you identify you know, patients that may benefit from some intervention from some of these psychological factors and, and how you effectively um, offer it and impact patients' outcome is something that's really evolving quickly. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Uh, just seeing the intersection of different kind of aspects of medicine that you might not, I guess they weren't considering before, and now they're starting to consider. That's that's great. I mean, great for patients too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's, um, I think has much more uh, ability to impact patients' experience than some of the traditional measures in orthopedics. So it, it is, it's a very exciting avenue of research. Absolutely. And a question I wanted to ask you, and, and this is just more for yourself, a personal question. So what would be kind of your favorite aspects of your job and maybe the kind of least favorite aspects? Oh, good question. So my favorite aspect of my job, I would say, is the personal interactions. So within that, I would put interactions with patients, which is something, again, I don't want to speak to um, what happens in medical school now, but when I graduated from medical school, I'm not sure I had the best skill set to like effectively interact and communicate with patients and meet them where they are, as I said. So that, that's something I've worked on a lot over the last 12 years, and I'd like to think I've gotten much better at over time. So I get a lot out of those interactions. I get a lot out of the interactions with learners. Um, you know, where I work, that's more often residents and, and fellows, uh, but also with medical students. Um, I find those interactions really are um um, a lot of give and take, and I get a lot of benefit out of those interactions. And then also with the colleagues we work with, so not just the other physicians, but the, the nursing colleagues we work with all over the hospital, I get a, a lot out of those interactions. Um, what was the second part of the question? Sorry. It was the least favorite aspect. Oh, least favorite. Oh, yeah. Well, that's easy. So, <laughs> um, you know, I don't think any of us like not having control over our own lives and and that if you were going to put in a nutshell what's a challenge about lifestyle and so on during residency is you really have limited control over your life you know over your schedule over your hours over where you work you know you don't have decision making autonomy all the time so that's a really hard thing i think for the human psyche and that is 
continues to be true. So, you know, you think, well, you're staff surgeon, you've been working, you're sort of mid-career and, and, you know, you're the one in the room that gets to make the decisions and really you, you have control over all those things, you know, or, or that's the perception. But the reality is, is you don't. Um, so there's, a, there's an inherent lack of control to uh, this line of work. So, you know, I, I miss kids baseball games because I'm stuck in the OR. Um, there's days that I've missed my kids altogether during their lives. Um, and you know, that's not something that I'm, um, always able to control. Um, so that part's hard for sure. So having, um, lack of control over, um, over my own schedule and you know what my own day looks like at times is is still a challenge thank you so much for giving us this like really honest and broad overview of the highlights and i don't want to say low lights but a very honest view of uh, what life post residency looks like i wanted to give one one skill thing i tried to do as it relates to lack of control so I always tell the residents, um, disappointment is about expectation. So it's not disappointing to be on call and or to be stuck at the hospital all day when you expected that that was what was going to happen. Um, it's disappointing if you think that you were free that day to drop your kids off at school and then you get called in for this, that or the other. So I, what I've learned over time is to try to not set myself up for that disappointment. So I try very hard. I just don't, I don't push over scheduling and so on. So if I am on call, we don't book social engagements. And if my kids have like their Christmas concert, I trade the call. I don't, I don't try and say, well, it'll probably be okay. And you know, I could probably just sneak out and answer my phone. So I try and set it up so that I can avoid those, you know, significant disappointments associated with the lack of control. Um, because I think by overscheduling yourself, um, you, you really can set yourself up for disappointment. I think that's a really great piece of advice to think about. Thank you so much for that. Um, I guess one last personal question would be, um, what advice would you give your your medical school self if uh, prior to entering clerkship? Interesting. What advice would I give myself? So, huh? What would I say? So, what I would say is I I'm not someone that looks back with like any regret. I I think I've had lots of great opportunities. I love my career. Um, I've been really blessed in my personal life. Um, and so I'm, I'm so grateful for those things. Um, if I could go back, I would say, um, be kind to yourself. And what I mean by that is that, you know, training and early career and even mid career can be stressful. Um, there's a lot at stake, um, meaning, you know, these are human beings with illness and with injuries and all of these things. And, and it's a big responsibility that we share. And when things, you know, happen, bad outcomes happen, um, when stressful interactions happen, those are stressful and those can start to seep over into other parts of your life. And so what I would say to myself at that stage would be, you know, be kind to yourself and start working hard on developing skills um, that are going to help you be resilient to those things. Um, because I think I have those skills now um, for sure. But did I have those skills as early as I would have liked, I, I think I, I would have, it would have been good to have them earlier. What a great answer. I think that's just like fantastic advice. 
And that does bring us to the end of our episode. But thank you so much, Dr. Lefebvre, for speaking with us today. I felt this was such a candid conversation and we just learned so much about orthopedic surgery, but also beyond that as well. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, guys. For more episodes of Metamorphosis, look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Take care and remember to wash your hands. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 